you will notice that uh, this morning I alone am wearing a tie. <laughs> yes. But <laughs> not like Morris. But of course you must understand that in Queensland we are very proper and actually we are the national leader when it comes to fashion. You know, where, where do you think uh, where do you think thongs, t-shirts and uh, shorts came from? <laughs> Queensland. <laughs> Morris. That's right. Oh, we can blame Morris. He's not here, can't we? Last year, uh, you remember I, uh, I mentioned uh, my friend Setu, Setu Malama, uh, my, my Samoan friend. Uh, he, he got married last year and I, I was privileged to take the wedding for him and uh, we did that at the college grounds where we taught, which is on the, the, right on the Brisbane River and the lawns run right down to the river and uh, that's, uh, that's where the wedding uh, took place outdoors, beautiful sunny day, but it was very hot. And so there we were, uh, all in suits, feeling very warm and sweaty as the sun was bearing down upon everybody. But then the, uh, the bridal party came and then there was, uh, there was uh, Setu and uh, his four um, support team, uh, brothers, cousins and what have you. Uh, all of them looked like, if, if you could imagine, the reserve grade for all, all blacks, that's what they were all like. Now they wore white shirts and what is this that you wear in Fiji? Sulu, yes. So they all wore this Sulu, you see, which apparently comes from Fiji, uh, another leader in fashion, you see. <laughs> and so the wedding was conducted uh, there. Now the girl he married um, uh, was Japanese and she still is Japanese, I guess. Mariko. So Setsu and Mariko were married on the lawns um, going down to the Brisbane River. Her bridal support party, four girls, all Japanese, and they all came over for the wedding. So there was this Japanese contingent and this uh, Samoan, New Zealand contingent as well for this, this wedding. And, uh, and there you had these five guys lined up <laughs> with their sulus on and their muscles and, uh, and everything and bees or something or other and uh, sandals and uh, then you had five petite refined Japanese girls wearing pastel shades of, uh, of their beautiful dresses and it was pretty marvellous really pretty marvellous so really enjoyed that and uh, now they have a, a little girl a Samoan Japanese child lovely kid yes well, um, we are now uh, going to be looking at chapter 8 of, um, of Romans. The glorious realisation of the Christian's destiny. Here Paul picks up his theme and really he is picking up his theme from the end of chapter 5. We'll go to the next one here. Um, well, first of all, we'll make this transition. So, if we, if we look at the last verse of chapter 5, and then the first verse of chapter 8, we do have a continuity, because those chapters in between, 6 and 7, really are Paul's answering a couple of objections that, uh, again, he anticipated, that, that were going to be raised after he had finished the fifth chapter, 
talking about the abundance of grace that has come to us. And uh, those two objections uh, concern the, um, shall we continue in sin if, that grace may abound? Remember he, he said that? As uh, sin abounded, grace abounded all, all the more. Now someone's going to say, well, um, well, does that mean you just, just, just sin and grace will abound? And he takes a whole chapter, the sixth chapter, to refute that and to, uh, to present the fact that uh, no, the, the, the whole idea is that we are delivered from sin, not to continue in sin. And he uses baptism as, a, uh, as an explanation for that. Let me just show you this one. Uh, so we have objection one. You see that? Shall we continue in sin? Chapter six. We have objection number two. Is the law sin? So when he gets to the seventh chapter, uh, he answers again this other question about the law. What about the law? Have we just cast it aside? Is it meaningless? Is it of no use whatsoever? Uh, and, and he answers this question, is the law sin? No, it is not sin. It was simply weak through our flesh to bring about righteousness. Well, um, let me go back and just read this, this, these connecting verses. So the end of chapter 5, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin abounded, grace ab- abounded. Actually the word uh, in the Greek is hyper hyperabounded, all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there you see, uh, he has raised the question of grace, abounding grace, and, uh, and of course that, that can be easily misinterpreted to be licensed, to do as you like, which is, of course it is not. And that is why he takes the sixth chapter to uh, deal with that objection. So he goes straight on from there. At uh, the end of uh, chapter 5, the last verse, that uh, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, we, we have this uh, progression as you see on the screen. Uh, we have uh, looked at our section 5 about justification, then about identification in that last uh, section of chapter 5, um, which I said was the heart of the letter. And uh, he deals in 7 and 8 to these objections, objection number 1, objection number 2, and then he comes back to his theme. But this time, It is the work of the Holy Spirit leading to glorification. That is where we are heading. We are going to be glorified with Him. So, hence His theme. Now, uh, I should uh, just comment the end of chapter 7. The end of chapter 7, of course, we have the man of chapter 7. It was often referred to. Who is this man of chapter 7? What is going on here? Is this the Apostle Paul speaking biographically? This is what I have gone, gone through, such as he says, I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want, the good that I want, but the evil I do not want, that I keep on doing. So he goes uh, along in this theme 
uh, in that last section of the seventh chapter. Uh, so some people say, well, this is Paul just speaking about the struggle of the Christian life. And then when he gets into chapter 8, he realizes where deliverance is, and it is through the Holy Spirit, which, of course, the Holy Spirit is featured in chapter 8, and, uh, and therefore, this therefore becomes the normal Christian life. So it is suggested that we must struggle in the seventh chapter, and then when we get to the eighth chapter, we find where deliverance truly is in the, in the Holy Spirit. Well, is it that? Is, it, is this the normal Christian life? Is this uh, Paul's um, experience that he is uh, telling us? Because he's using the first person. He's saying, I. This is what happened to me. This is the way I felt. Uh, let me just read to you a few verses from the end of chapter 7, from verse four, uh, 14, to get the spirit of what is being said here. So he says there, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, or carnal, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, then I agree with the law that it is good. So, what do you notice about that? What preposition does he keep on using? I. Remember that little saying, I, me, my, the devil's name is I. He spells his name with a big black I. I, me, my. That is the characteristic. What is happening here in the seventh chapter? The subject of the seventh chapter is, is the law sin? He's talking about the law. And here, in that latter part of chapter 7, it is a believer, because he loves the law of God, he has a desire to, to do this law, but he can't. So it is someone who is regenerate, born again, but he struggles. Why? Because he is trying to live this Christian life under law. That's what he's teaching. This is not the way we live the life. We do not live under law, we live under grace. And uh, this, uh, the power comes from the new creation. As I said uh, a couple of days ago, was it now? It is the new life by which I will live out of now, not the law. So, when, when one tries to live under the law, I becomes the feature. Self-consciousness overcomes us. We are hyper... Uh, concerned about ourselves. It is me and it is my other me. You know, he, he seems to be divided. I like this, but I over here do that, as if there is two of me going on. So, self-consciousness or self-occupation becomes a carnal occupation when I'm always concerned about the me. When you get to the eighth chapter, me drops out. I is no longer to be seen. He seems now totally unconcerned with I. It is what God is doing by the Holy Spirit through this new life that I have. Also, someone has pointed out that there is not a single imperative in the 8th chapter. That is, not a single thing, you must do this, you must do that. You don't get the ring of law uh, coming through. Um, who was it? Was it um, who was the... Um, uh, it was Beethoven, I think, who was the, uh, cons considered the composer of the Reformation. The German, 
composer? Was Beethoven? Oh, Bach. No, sorry, it was Bach. That's right, Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes, that's him. <laughs> so th there is a, um, oh, what is it called? The ha not the Hallelujah Chorus, the, um, uh, oh, I can't think of the name of a, of, a, of a religious piece. The first one was written by a man called Palestrina. Now, Palestrina was considered to be the Roman Catholic musician or composer. And he set this music uh, to, it's called the Hosannas or something like that. Uh, Palestrina did his piece uh, of, this, of this music. Uh, and it was very good music. Um, but then later, Bach did the same. He wrote the same, to the same uh, lyrics, his piece. But this, uh, the writer of this church history book said, when you listen to Palestrina, uh, you are listening to the sound of law and duty coming through, the throb of Catholic theology. You must do this, you see. But when it came into the Lutheran hands of Bach, or you could, you could sense the release, the freedom, right down, uh, to quote what he said, to his toe-tapping Lutheran shoes. <laughs> so we are, we are not over here. We do not hear the throb of law, the throb of duty, what you must do. We now have liberation uh, in Bach's, Lutheran hands at the time. Well, we've come from justification to identification in chapter 5 and now we are moving on to what's going to bring us to glorification. Romans chapter 5.18 says, Therefore, as by one trespass, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. Justification and life for all men. Imputed righteousness leading to union with, uh, with the life of Christ. Justification and life. So remember we said justification was this forensic reality. We were still sinners but justified. But now we are moving into life. Not simply this forensic justification but but now it becomes a reality to, to us. The ministry of life, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me just read those first verses of chapter 8. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we are no longer in Adam, but in Christ. Now, remember we said Romans 5.10 led into the latter part of Romans where we, re we read these words. While we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved in his life. So the question now is not one of justification, 
but of our position, of where we are. There is no condemnation. To quote uh, another man, uh, William, um, William Newell, who has a book on Romans, he said, In the risen Christ, where condemnation is not and cannot be, if you are in Christ, there can be no condemnation in this place. It cannot be there. It cannot exist there in Christ. And that's the glorious position into which we have been brought. There are no degrees in Christ. You are either in or you're not in. You know, you're not, you, you, you don't have a privileged position up or down. We don't measure degrees about being in Christ. We are absolutely and totally, be we, uh, whether we be a weak Christian or a strong Christian or a long-standing Christian or a brand new Christian, this walk is fulfilled in us. Now that uh, phrase, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, if you have a King James Bible, you will notice it in verse 1. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, which of course should never have been there. And in, in uh, subsequent translations, they have removed that phrase from verse 1. If that, if that did belong there, then condemnation, no condemnation, would, would depend upon walking after the Spirit. But no condemnation is not dependent upon walking after the Spirit. But having the righteousness of the law fulfilled in us is dependent. Now this becomes sanctification, this becomes our walk. It is dependent upon the... Uh, our walking after the Spirit, not after the flesh. So this is not us fulfilling the law by keeping the commandments, but us finding the righteousness of the law, the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us, passively, as we walk. Now it is possible for us to walk. This is absolutely achievable by, uh, in our lives. It is not a difficult thing for a Christian to walk after the Spirit because now he has a nature that automatically wants to do this and will do this. Note that it says who walk according to the flesh uh, not according to the Spirit. Now, the definite article is, uh, let's see, where you have a definite article that is a the, then you, you, you are referring to a person or a personal action. Where there is no article, you are referring to the nature or the, the sphere of being in which you are. So what it says to walk after spirit without the definite article. So we all have the spirit, the person of the spirit. But when it talks about the baptism of the spirit and talks about being filled with the spirit, it actually is being filled with Holy Spirit. The emphasis therefore falls upon the power of that person, not the personality. So, uh, often people misunderstand when they say, oh, you don't, you don't need the baptism of the Spirit, you're a Christian, you already have the Spirit. Well, yes you do, you have the Spirit, but you may not necessarily have the power of the Spirit, or you may not have the, the working of the Spirit. Which, which you see in the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And similarly you have here, you are walking after Spirit, Holy Spirit in this sense. And so in this way the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. 
Back to our chart, the contrast. Uh, there are two classes of men, two classes of, of, of human beings, if you like. And there is an absolute distinction between the two. The regenerate, the unregenerate. The born again, the, those who are not born again. Those who are after the flesh, those who are after the spirit. Those who are carnal, those who are, spirit, are spiritual. Now, in Romans, these are distinct categories. If you, if you turn to Corinthians, he uses the word carnal, but there uh, it is babes in Christ. So he is using that word carnal or fleshly in a different way when he comes to Romans to when he comes to Corinthians. There it is, the young Christian, the young Christian who is still somewhat living after the flesh. But here, carnal means absolutely carnal. And down through the ages, of course, there have been those who have walked after the flesh in a singular way, like Cain, Esau, Balaam, Saul, Judas. These, in Paul's reckoning, are according to flesh. But then you have others who live according to spirit. The regenerate and the carnal, verses 5 to 8. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds upon the things of the flesh. For, the, for they set their minds on, those who set their minds on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. When it is talking about the mind, it is the disposition, the attitudes, the fears, the desires of that individual that, that is being spoken of. Those who are of the flesh are not regenerate. They live according to the futile ways inherited from their forefathers in which we all lived. Before we were born again, all we had were the futile ways of our forebears. And we did the same thing. That was our, the air we breathed. That was the nature we had inherited. They might be cultured, they might be educated, refined, attractive, winsome, all of these things. But man is still of the flesh if he has not been born again. Ephesians says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In summary, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I was listening to an interview uh, with an author uh, who wrote a, 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 one of the recent biographies of Winston Churchill. And there's, I don't know, 800, 900 biographies been written of this one man who uh, was regarded by many as being the man of the 20th century, Winston Churchill. And uh, he, he's a, he was he's a very interesting, he was a very interesting man, incredible. When he was 17, I think, he was a Harrow School and he said to a, a friend of his, another boy at the school by the name of Evans, he said, um, the day is coming when, when troublous times are going to come to this country. This country is going to be invaded and I am going to be called upon to save this country. I am going to be called upon to save London and England. Like a prophetic word. And he had this driving sense of destiny all his life. He had this sense that he was being prepared for something right from his earliest years. And, uh, and yet, of course, he was a brilliant man. 
He, uh, he made many speeches, he wrote many, many books. But of the 5.1 million words he wrote and the 8-odd million words he spoke, he never mentioned the two words, Jesus Christ, once. He mentioned the word Christ once, but in a different context. He believed in God. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. And yet he believed that God was in, in control of his destiny and of all things. And yet, was still a man of the flesh. Brilliant though he was. That's where he lived. Um, destiny and all. He was Church of England. Everybody in England was Church of England. Anybody who was anybody was Church of England. And, uh, but, he, but he said, um, I, I, I am not on the inside of the Church of England. I am, a, I am on the outside of the Church of England like a flying buttress. In other words, I support the Church of England like a flying buttress up against the cathedral, which of course he did. But still, a man who did not know God. And as far as we know, for all of his life, he remained the same, unregenerate. Secondly, the regenerate and the spiritual. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, if the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. That is an absolute statement about us. The great mark of the Christian uh, is this, the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. The body is dead because of sin, verse 10. That is, the body is not yet redeemed. We are redeemed and our spirits, but our body is not. You check the mirror out and it's confirmed to you. It's not redeemed. But one day it shall be. It shall be. And that we shall be as he is in heaven in that day, a glorified body. For while we are still in this tent, Paul said, we groan. We're burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up of life. And to this day, we are looking forward when that shall come. The spirit is life because of righteousness, so the body is dead. It is dying, according to what God said to Adam in the garden. In the day you eat, you will die. You'll begin to die and you'll continue to die, then you'll die. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. So therefore, we now are under, under obligation. We are debtors, he tells us, to live after the spirit, not after the flesh. If you live after the spirit, you will die. Or that is, you are tasting death to, to walk after the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, or literally, you are about to die, it reads. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Of course, disobedient sons will be disciplined by a Heavenly Father, if indeed they are sons. If you never get disciplined, you're not God's son. It's a good way of telling whether you really are a Christian. If God leaves you alone, 
then ask the question. If you go to the supermarket and you see a child acting up, just wait for a while and you'll find out who the parent is. <laughs> Not always, sometimes. Uh, sometimes I've seen children acting up in the supermarket and I've said, I'd like to be the parent. <laughs> but of course, I never do. You know, I would like to deal with this case. But I really can't do that because I'm not the father. Wouldn't we all love to do this? <laughs> Let me add it. In Russia, you know, the babushkas, the grandmothers, they have a special authority. I was sitting in a, we were in a, in a meeting in Kazakhstan, mainly Russians and Kazakhs, of course, but uh, sitting there and in the front there were a few rows of children and back here were the adults. And a little kid in the front was, was playing up like that. And I saw a walking stick come over. <laughs> and a few words were said by a, a grandmother, a babushka. And the child quickly behaved. So, so we were telling someone, uh, we were teaching English in, in, in Moscow. And uh, Brenda, my wife, had a bunch of little kids. And they were playing up. And she said, how am I, how am I going to control these children who are misbehaving? And she, then she got an idea because out in the passageway were some grandmothers who had brought their children. So she went out and she got one of the grandmothers, would you like, please come in. So she came in, sat down and bang, every child, every child. As soon as there was something, ah, wow, this grandmother was into it. She had authority over the lot of them. And peace prevailed for the rest of the lesson. So if you're ever teaching in Russia, just keep that in mind. Look for the babushka and you'll be right. So, um, God will, will discipline us. Misbehaving children. We are told rather to judge our own selves. If you judge yourself, you will not be judged by the Lord. What must you do? The instruction is mortify, which is, which is put to death. Put to death not sin in the flesh, that condemned uh, tenant that we've got, because you can't do that, not yet. You can't put to death the principle of sin in the flesh. Put to death, not the body, life is hard if you don't have a body, so don't put to death the body, but rather put to death the deeds of the body, one at a time. Not difficult, not difficult. If you have a tendency to do this thing and you know it's wrong, well, mortify it. That's all you've got to do. Just mortify that thing and continue walking after the Spirit. It is not hard. It is not hard because we have the Spirit, the person and the power with us. This is what the man in Romans didn't have. You know, that, uh, and, and of course, he was using that as a, as a literary technique you know, to use first person to describe. So, so you may feel what it is like to be trying to live under law without God the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there was a, a provision made for persons who had contacted dead bodies. And it was called the offering of the red heifer. So, it was prescribed, God had prescribed that uh, the children of Israel take a red heifer, um, a young cow, and they were to slay this red heifer and uh, they were to take the blood, 
sprinkle it seven times toward the, um, the, uh, the ark, the, uh, the altar, and the tent of meeting. And then they were to take the beast outside the camp. Now you know when, when uh, an offering was taken outside the camp, it was uh, probably a sin offering. And that's what this was. The sin offering was completely consumed outside. It was not, uh, it was not shared to eat. It was, uh, you know, among the priests and, and, and the family and the offerer, like certain other offerings were. This, this offering was taken outside the camp. Everything. Everything in the animal. Hide, uh, in, internals, everything. And it was burnt outside. They added to that, that fire, as it burnt, they added hyssop, scarlet wool, and um, one other thing, I can't remember what, what, what it was. But there were three ingredients that went into that, that burning heifer. It was burnt to ash. And then, after it had settled down, the, uh, a man was to go out and was to collect the ash, hence Hebrews, the ashes of an heifer. And these, uh, these ashes were then kept. Uh, they were kept in a clean place outside the camp. So that if somebody contacted a dead body, now remember that verse we, we, we read, to walk after the flesh is death. To walk after the flesh you are about to die. There is this provision pictured in the Old Testament of the offering of the red heifer. If someone had contacted a dead body, immediately they were defiled. Now, it may have been inadvertent. It may have been in, in, the, in the context of war that they touched a dead body. It may be that someone died next to them. It may be someone had died in their tent and they could not avoid it. Uh, but whatever the case, that person was regarded as defiled and had to be cleansed. And uh, the prescription was that, um, that water was to be added or to the ashes and then it was to be sprinkled upon the defiled person. It was, it was to be sprinkled upon over a period of seven days. Day three and then day seven. That person was not regarded as clean until that process had taken place. And to me this is a picture of the process of repentance in the life of a Christian. You cannot sin and defile yourself and say, oh well, I'm sorry, forgive me, and then go on as if nothing happened. And uh, unfortunately, we have seen that in the church so often. You know, we call that quick grace, you know. I remember one, uh, one famous evangelist in America who, um, who became a scandal. And uh, he was put out of his church by his denomination, and then he said, oh, that, that's too long. I'm not going to stay out that long because I'm too important. And so he, he, uh, he, he went out for a little while and then came back to the ministry because he felt he was greatly needed the ministry, but he was a defiled person. And uh, the process of repentance just did not happen. So it seems to me that this is, uh, you know, if, if you are defiled, whether intentionally or inadvertently, um, you still need this, what is pictured by the seven days, the ashes of a heifer, the, the cleansing of this water mixed with the ashes of this sacrifice, third day, seventh day, and then the person is regarded as clean. Uh, so, hence also in the Christian life, I think this is uh, most necessary uh, for us that we do not rush into, a, uh, into and s to say, we're, oh, we're forgiven, we're fine. No, no, no. Repent. Take time. Let the water of the word cleanse you. 
so that you may, you know, it's a matter of fellowship with the Father. You know, your, 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 your state remains the same, but your fellowship is gone. And one must be cleansed. That fellowship must be restored. And it, and it does not happen immediately. Let the, let the work of repentance work in a life. Well, um, what does the future hold? I said it holds for us glorification. Now we've looked at that one. Yes, I'm quoting here from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones I mentioned the other day. He said this uh, back the middle of last century, actually. It is surely significant, he said, that there has been virtually no emphasis on glorification, especially during the last past century. And yet it is the thing to which the Apostle directs our, our attention at the beginning of chapter 5 and which he unfolds here in chapter 8. Glorification, you don't hear it in the modern church, that we are going to be glorified. The only glorification is really down here that's, that, that, are, that is taking up people's attention and people's uh, concern. Number 11. The believer is a son and heir. We have uh, received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That is simply the Aramaic word and the Greek word for Father. This is what we have. We have this witness by the Spirit, witnessing with our spirit the reality of this relationship with the Heavenly Father. If we are heirs, then we are joint heirs with Christ. Remember the rich young ruler came with his question, what must I do to inherit? Which actually is a contradictory question. If you're going to inherit, you don't do anything. But he was saying, in order to inherit, what do I do? I, you can't do. It's grace. We have inherited this by grace. Suffering with Christ will lead to our being glorified together with him. Present suffering is not to be compared with coming glory. We note Paul's suffering in, in 2 Corinthians 11. He catalogues the incredible things that he went through which we hope we will not have to taste even half of it of what he went through. Hebrews 11, the sufferings of the saints, uh, the heroes of faith are listed for us in that chapter. You will notice that uh, if, you, if you count those that had a positive outcome and those that had a negative outcome, it's about the same. But they all did it by faith. Some by faith overcame and succeeded and won some by faith were sawn asunder, became, uh, went to the hills to hide from their enemy and suffered incredibly, which is the story of the church. Yet all did it by faith. But that suffering, as great as it is, is still not to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us in that day. No matter how great the suffering is, it's nothing to compared to what is coming. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. There's a wonderful verse in Second um, Thessalonians about the day when, uh, when he comes to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. Well, what, is this, what does this mean? It's, it is meaning that 
the, the, um, the principalities and powers, the angelic beings, all life is going to look upon the glory of Christ, not in Christ, but in us. That God has deigned to reveal the glory of his Son in the church of God. And in that day, it will be revealed. In that day, every eye will see it. In the same way as, as you drive down the, the road of a Saturday afternoon and you, uh, you see a wedding over here. And of course, then all the ladies in your car say, Oh, stop, I must look. What are they looking for? The bridegroom? Oh, look at him. What a wonderful suit he's wearing today. Look at that man. He is really something. Look at the hairstyle. Everything. Uh, they're not. <laughs> they're looking at the bride. Who wants to see the bride? But what, what is the bridegroom doing? <laughs> he's receiving it all second hand. You know, it's all coming to him, isn't it? It's being reflected. Because everyone looks at her and says, Wow, if she is like that, what, what must he be like? Wow, if, if, if he managed to talk her into marrying him, he must be something. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you. <laughs> That's right, yes. Preach <laughs> it. Well, that, that is going to happen in that day when we shall be glorified, but our, the glory in us will simply highlight the glory of the Son. And this will be the day of all days, the day of the marriage of the Lamb. This will be the day that the whole of history has been moving towards. Every wedding that has ever taken place is simply a weak reflection of a greater wedding to which the Father has deigned should happen. He has been, he has been and taking great pride in preparing for the marriage of his son, his one son, his only son, and that will be the great and glorious day. But what about us here? We groan within ourselves as we await the adoption. Every morning as we get out of bed, we groan. All of those over 70 at least groan <laughs> in the mornings. This life proves to be, as often been said, a veil of tears. A short time to live. Uh, this, this is a quote that sometimes you hear. Man is born of a woman, hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. <laughs> now, Pentecostals say, oh, no, no, we're not interested in that. But nevertheless, for most people in the world, this is the reality. This is the reality. If you lived in the Middle Ages the life expectancy would not be much past 30. Most children would not make it you know, to adulthood. The, uh, the, the, the rate of, of death was tremendous. And uh, it was said of Martin Luther that he never expected to live to the following evening. Not simply because they thought he was going to take his life, but life was so precarious in the Middle Ages. Disease, no antibiotics, and so on. Uh, it was a very dicey thing to be alive because you could quickly be dead. And uh, we are somewhat insulated uh, in our modern life from, from, all of, from, this, from this present sense of death just being around the corner. But we are still nevertheless left to groan, but we have a hope and we with patience wait for this adoption, for this deliverance when we shall be changed.
You know, the um, nature also groans and travails, waiting for the adoption, us. And I often like to say that um, Greenpeace and, uh, and green organisations, they virtually say to nature, look to us, we are your saviours. We're the ones who are going to bring you deliverance. But nature, personified, is much smarter. They say we're looking for the revelation of the sons of God. That will be our deliverance. Nature even knows this. It knows it's going to come. And of course nature groans, nature travails, nature is full of futility and vanity. Yeah, you, get, you watch the, uh, the wildlife program, the antelope with the, with the baby antelope, whatever you call it, the calf, or not calf, but suddenly a lion appears, chases the baby, takes it. The mother antelope stands at a distance. Futility, loss. She has worked to raise this offspring, only to see it gone in a moment. All is futile. That is nature, red in tooth and claw, as they say. That is nature. It has come so because of what Adam did. Remember I said he was the king? When the king fell, everything under his dominion also fell, and nature becomes red in tooth and claw. It turns upon itself, and, uh, and it makes life hard. But that will change. The next point, uh, the creation with eager longing uh, waits for the revelation of the sons of God, as I have said. Uh, it was subjected to it in hope. It has hope that this is going to, to change. And that point there, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits grown within ourselves waiting for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Then our salvation will be complete. We are saved, but we are being saved, and we will be saved. Yes? And when we, are, when we will be saved, all will be changed, and we will be completely redeemed. But we have a problem. 15, and we need help now. Hence, the Spirit comes to us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know the particular what to pray for as we ought. We pray for things that we, that we know are needs, and so we, we, we pray for them, and legitimately we pray for them. But sometimes there are things we don't know. And here we are reliant upon the Spirit of God to, within us, with groanings that cannot be uttered, it says, to, uh, to help us. This is the answer to our weakness. The Spirit helps us. Now that word helps is a three-part word. Sun anti lumbano. A Greek would be able to pronounce it much better. Sun means together with. Anti means over against each other. And lumbano means to take a hold of. So you get this picture. Two of us together. One on this side of the table, one on that side of the table. We are over against each other. And we take a hold of the table. And then it's easy to pick it up and move it. But if you by yourself try and move the table, you're likely to do your back and uh, you know, strain some muscles and so on. But it's much easier to do it with another. So, sun anti lumbano. Together with, over against each other, to take a hold. 
Now, with whom do we do this? With the Spirit. It is with the Spirit. The Spirit helps us. The Spirit takes a hold on the other side of the weight and the burden and helps us to do what needs to be done, inspiring us as to what we should pray for as we ought. Unutterable sighs. And this is not speaking in tongues as some people have interpreted because they cannot be uttered. It is the deep groaning of the Spirit of God within the believer. This doesn't happen every day, but it does happen. And we should be sensitive to it. And we should be responsive to it when we sense God is speaking and, and saying, pray for, for this or for, for that, whatever it might, might happen to be. In 1915, uh, there was, a, of course, the, the Pentecostal revival had started. And uh, in, a, in a town called Preston in England, there was a, uh, a Pentecostal work, a very vibrant Pentecostal work going on uh, the pastor was a, a man by the name of Thomas Mayerskoff and he was contemporary with all those, uh, you know, Barrett and uh, Louis Petrus and uh, all those men of, of Donald G. of that particular time. That was the beginning of the, the, the Pentecostal movement and it was a tremendously powerful time. Um, a lot of people being healed, dramatic things happening. There was a young man by the name of Willie Burton who uh, had felt a call to go to the mission field when he was six years old uh, an African-American came to his home, laid hands on six-year-old Willie and prayed that he would become a missionary to Africa. That was where this man's forebears had come from. May God send him to Africa. So obviously this remained with him. He grew up, he became an engineer. He was a, a very brilliant man. He was an uh, artist. He could draw beautifully. Uh, uh, he, was, uh, he was very capable in everything. He was adequately, wonderfully uh, equipped to be a missionary. He could build. He could build anything. He could make anything. And uh, he could survey land, which is one of the things he did when he got to the field. He helped the government very much by his ability to survey the country. And uh, he, uh, he did all sorts of things like recognise flowers and, and, and plants and uh, drew all sorts of uh, uh, research. Uh, he just had that capability. Well, he wanted to be a missionary. But he was a very, um, uh, you know, forward, almost proud, self-confident individual and kind of uh, uh, a number of mission societies he applied to didn't want him. So he was kind of left hanging out there. No one seemed to want him. And yet he felt this great urge to be a missionary. One day in Preston, he was down the street and he met, a, he met his friend, uh, James Salter. Now, James Salter was the son-in-law of Smith uh, Wigglesworth. Yeah. So, James Salter, of course, was almost the opposite, the mirror reverse of Willie Burton. Willie Burton was educated, capable, came from a prominent family, had breeding behind him, uh, money, everything he had. James Salter was an orphan. He didn't even, even know who his parents were. Uneducated. And yet they met in the streets of Preston. And... Uh, Willie Burton says, um, you know, brother James, the need of the pagans for the gospel. We have to do something about it. And they agreed on that street, the two of them, they're going to go to Congo. They're going to the Belgian Congo to preach the gospel. So it, it took some time, but finally they went. 
Willie Burton got out there first to South Africa. James Salter came along later. They prepared for a very arduous trip up to the heart of the Congo. And um, they had two others who were with them. Uh, there was um, Joseph Blakeney, a young man, traveled with them, and uh, William Armstrong, he was a builder, he was a retired builder, he was an older man. He also was, co was coming with them. So they had a party of four, and they were going to go. They, they traveled by train, by riverboat, by uh, on foot with carriers, carrying all their equipment through jungle tracks to finally get to the Congo uh, area. And, uh, but of course, it was, it was hard going. They were struck with malaria, not once, but time and time again. And it was every bout of malaria weakened them even more. Both Salter and Willie Burton often were down. When one was down, the other was nursing him. When he was down, the other was the nurse who looked after him. And, uh, and so life was very difficult. Finally, um, Armstrong, William Armstrong, the older man, contracted blackwater fever. First of all, malaria, then blackwater fever, and he died. They're on the riverboat, Congo River. They stopped. I've got a picture here. There they are. That is the funeral on the banks of the Congo. Um, William Armstrong is, uh, is being buried. On the left, you will see Willie Burton, tall guy with the white, uh, the white jacket, and right in the middle, uh, Joseph Blakeney. They were the four. The others probably would have been Belgian officials and then, of course, workers on the, uh, on the riverboat. They had a, a, a funeral there. James Salter is not in the picture because he lay sick of malaria, uh, either, either in the tent or on the boat. They left that grave open believing that Salter would soon die himself. But he never did. He pulled through and they pressed on. As they were, as they were, were pressing on uh, in, in caravan, you know, with, with, uh, with carriers carrying all their equipment, um, I think Blakeney was riding a push bike that they had brought and, uh, and Willie Burton uh, was, was bringing up the rear. But he, he was much weakened because of malaria. And uh, as, as they trudged on, suddenly Willie Burton began to feel very faint, very dizzy, and his legs began, began to give, give away. He was falling back. He wasn't making the grade. Slowly, he felt himself start to sink onto an anthill, and there he lay basically unconscious. And he thought to himself, well, this is it. Um, we've come to the end. Um, we're not going to make the grade. Here, the whole, the whole uh, project now uh, lay possibly finished. Then suddenly, he began to feel a sense of strength come into him. He began to feel uh, something from his head come down through his body like, like warm water uh, reviving him and it strengthened him and more and more he, became, he gained strength. Then he stood up and uh, as he stood up, he became even stronger then started to walk, then started to run, then started to praise God. And uh, he was running and skipping and praising God, full of life, full of health, full of strength. Amen. And they continued on. And so started this, this work in the Congo, 
which by the time uh, Willie Burton left the field, there were 1,000 churches in the jungles of the Congo. And it was done basically um, by the power of God. Every time they came to a village, uh, as Willie Burton put it, he said, we would pray indiscriminately for the sick. I like the word indiscriminately. Which they did. Anyone who is sick, we will pray for you. And, and more times than not, they were healed. And every time somebody was healed, the whole village opened to this gospel. And so a, plant, a church was planted. And village after village after village, this is what happened in the whole period. Now that, that, that church in the Congo is now twice that size. Um, and we have some friends actually who worked with that mission. Uh, you, you, you remember Margaret Nicholson. Well, her, her sister worked on that mission. She, uh, she married... Um, um, no, not Evans, no, it was, it was another one. Um, uh, Herschel, yeah. Uh, Herschel, um, Ken. Yeah, Ken Herschel. So Ken Herschel and Esther, uh, they went to the Congo. Uh, he, um, he became a pilot. He, he flew a light plane in the Congo and, uh, and did a great work. A great work was done there. And of course now it's, it's self-sufficient. There, there are a few missionaries there, support missionaries, but basically the whole work is self-sufficient. Some years later, uh, Willie Burton was in England and um, North London at a meeting and a lady comes up to him with diary in hand and says, Mr. Burton, I want to know what happened on this date at this time. So he thinks, well, he couldn't remember straight away. Oh, yes, he, and now he rem remembers. They, they, uh, they calculated the time. She said, I don't know what it was, 10.30 a.m., and they, they took the time difference, was 8.30, I think, or something like that in the Congo, the exact time. She was in her house working and uh, suddenly she gets this sense, pray for Mr. Burton down here, stronger and stronger. She put it off. No, no, I'm busy, I'm busy, I've got to do my work. Pray for Mr. Burton, pray for Mr. Burton. And finally she did and she uh, prayed and uh, the power of God came upon her in such burden such strength she's never felt before. Then suddenly it lifted and she went out and went on with the work and that's what happened. It was the very day he was lying on Mount Hill. Pray for Mr. Burton. God bless you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.